Hello, I'm Rick Edwards. This is a podcast version of the Project Reset video series from Mission Winnow, where I'm joined by global thought leaders to talk about what we've just been through and how we could use this moment to reset. Find out more on missionwinnow.com. In a few months, the world has rapidly changed. And we have an opportunity to use this moment to reimagine the world we live in forever. Powering transformation through bold thinking, big ideas, and brave action. This is Project Reset. Hello there, uh, I'm Rick Edwards, and in a matter of months, the world has changed. We've all changed. Uh, we've adopted new behaviours, sometimes out of choice, sometimes out of necessity, to establish this so-called new normal. Uh, but now that the restrictions are slowly being lifted, will we stick with it? Uh, and I wonder what we've learnt and how we might use this knowledge, this new knowledge, to shape our future. Uh, and to help me answer this, uh, I've got together what is, quite frankly, a stellar panel. Uh, I think it would be quite useful uh, to get you to introduce yourselves uh, and then explain your link to this sort of behavioural evolution. Uh, let's start with Isabel. I'm Isabel Benke. I'm a primatologist and ethologist. I watch animals to learn about themselves and to learn about us. I've spent uh, many years in Africa following bonobos. Bonobos are, together with chimpanzees, your closest living relatives. So I learn about these animals in the wild and they have taught me a lot about ourselves. Shappy. I am Shappy Corsandi. I'm a comedian and a writer, but I've been a stand-up comedian for 25 years now, and I've written two books, one childhood memoir and one novel, and I'm currently writing my third, and I have a thing for sequin bunting. And finally, uh, Daniel. I'm Daniel Hume. I guess I'm an AI expert. I have an academic hat uh, where I help take technology from UCL and, and figure out how do we have the positive impact from that technology. I also run an AI company. Uh, AI raises questions about what it means to be human, what is consciousness, what's our place in the universe, and I'm very interested in how it's going to impact humanity over the next 20 years. First up, and I guess most obviously, I'd like to talk about working from home. So data shows that half of employees now predict that flexible working from home will become the norm. For the individual, is working from home a good thing? Isabel? It obviously depends who you are. If depends on your industry. Uh, for me, it has been very good because I guess as an academic and a researcher and somebody with weird habits, I've always worked or tried to work from home. I miss obviously the meetings and the coordination with people. So I can imagine that a flexible working future would involve a combination of working with, from home together with instances where you are meeting and how much and how often and with what purpose. That will depend on you and your industry. Shappy, do you do a lot of work from home and how do you find it? The work I do at home um, is write columns and my books, right? But my work is being a live stand-up comedian. On the one hand, I have absolutely relished this time with my children, cocooned with them, not missing bedtimes, being with them 24 hours a day, 
seven days a week. But for as long as I remember being alive, I've needed to meet new people regularly like a vampire needs blood. I'm a, I'm a bit of an outlier. So personally, I, I love what I do. So work doesn't feel like work to me. Um, but I, I run a company of about 100 people. And over the past 10 years, we've tried to um, figure out what are the minimal set of rules you need to organize people. And so we start out with zero rules in the sense you can work anywhere you want, however you want, whatever you want. Um, we don't have any KPIs, we don't have any managers, any hierarchies. And what's interesting is that, is that um, obviously different people want different things. And there, there is a need for some people to have an office and come together. There is a need for some people to not socially interact. And what's interesting, I think we're having to now cater for all of the complexity of different people's needs. Are we moving towards a kind of decentralization then? And uh, well, I guess the more basic question is, what is decentralization and why would it be good? I think what we're, we're doing is we're starting to use technology and new organizational designs to give people more freedom and more granularity in how they work and whatever they work. That will apply both inside organizations, but it will also apply to uh, gig workers. People will have the freedom to work across different uh, types of organizations. And that raises lots of very interesting social and, and political questions. I think the design community is quite an interesting example where most good designers tend to be freelancers, but they still also come together as a community and have beer and share stories and all this kind of stuff. But I definitely see um, organizations trying to give people, get, understand more about people's granular needs, giving them the freedom to express those needs um, at work. People say granular quite a lot in the last what, six months, and I'm still not quite sure what it means. So, so I, today I could be working on one project, project doing marketing and tomorrow I could be doing photography on another project and the next day something else on another project. So instead of just me being a role and have one career, I'm a whole portfolio of ways that I can contribute to an organisation. And do you think we lose anything if we aren't together in, in physical spaces? I think some people do. Uh, we have lots of engineers in our organization, people that I guess you would regard as being quite introverted and, and things like that. Um, I, uh, for me, the, the happiest times is when I'm interacting with other people and, and, and feeding off other people. So uh, it's actually what we're trying to build into the framework and foundation of the company, that, that connection with other people, because we do think that it's valuable to the health and well-being of each person. And, and do you think that more people will choose to work from home? Because some people are lucky and have a have a space that they can just cordon off and say this is now my like home office. But lots of people won't have that room. They won't have that space, particularly if they live somewhere expensive like like London. My expectation is, is that companies will start to give people money to be able to have themselves at home, and hopefully they'll be able to get that money from not having to pay for traditional real estate. But eighty percent of my company want to be working from home, and we need to make sure that we're supporting them with that. Same question to you, Isabel. What will we lose if we aren't? in physical spaces together working? First and foremost, we are social animals and we have evolved and we learn and we adjust through social, physical, face-to-face -face interaction. That involves not just hearing each other, but having a whole sensory experience that happens at multi-channels. So obviously now we're doing Zoom and Zoom is better than say if we were emailing <laughs> because Zoom adds several channels of information. We have visual feedback so as I'm speaking I see Shapi doing this with her with her head so I know maybe I'm, you know, I'm not talking to a wall and maybe she's not angry uh, but still it's not the full experience. Notice when you're on a table having dinner with six people, conversation flows in and out, you, people split in two and threes and then everybody shouts at the same time and it's fun and then we laugh and then suddenly there's one conversation and there's this kind of like 
dance of interaction. In Zoom, you can't do that because we're like, should I say it now? Do I not? Do I just raise my hand? It's weird. It's awkward. Humans, when they, we are present in the same space, we synchronize. Synchronization is extremely important for bonding so and for collective action. What technologies are there that can increase the feeling of presence and that basically what do you do in order to synchronize people? I don't think that we do it well at all. We, we've tried to provide mechanisms of the past where people can come together in a, a shared space. We call it the Satalia kitchen. Yeah. Nobody turns up. Nobody turns up. And I think you've alluded to this is because using Zoom and these, um, these technologies, there is more friction. There, there is yeah. more calories that are needed exactly. to, uh, to engage. So the honest answer is we haven't solved that problem. And I think that we are going to probably see organizations having to think about explicitly building into their, their structures, their processes, their ceremonies, this type of interaction. Mm. Like uh, rituals for work, basically. Absolutely. Yeah, my, my question for Isabel is, um, what happens to bonobos when they're isolated? The same that happens to humans or to other social animals. Bonobos are highly social animals that are almost always in the company of one another, whether it's grooming or play or sex or food sharing. So isolation is very bad for social animals. So you basically get depression, anxiety, and all sorts of other problems. In the zoo, if they have social animals that are isolated, typically you will see first self-directed behavior. So this is kind of the self-scratching. Parrots pluck their feathers out. Horses that rock side to side, or a large predator that paces around their enclosure. They're repetitive and they have no variation. That's how you tell that there's something going on. And of course, it's not very different from what you see in kids that might be distressed, alone, or even us now that when we are locked and we go through our phones like this. I was going to say, is, is that like scrolling? Sure. Just like endlessly yeah. scrolling through a, through a feed and not getting anywhere? Yes, yes. I, I, I was listening to um, a podcast the other day about the guy who invented infinite scroll. Because if you remember back to the days when we didn't have infinite scroll, you'd kind of be making an active choice to go from the page you're on to the next page. And, you, and after a while, you just kind of stop because you're like, I've gone through too many pages. But with infinite scroll, there's no trigger to make you stop. It just keeps going and going right. and going and going. Yeah. And it, it's so like those, you know, those repetitive behaviours you, you're talking about of animals in, in zoos. See, that's the difference between what the rep endless scrolling does versus say the structure of a joke. The structure of humor, what you have is, you know, what Daniel is saying is that most of it is in the anticipation of excitement. You're building up an uncertainty and in that moment that uncertainty is fun. But then a game or a joke will break and then laughter comes and the reveal comes. But of course you, you don't have that with the endless scroll. We've sort of been talking about working from home like it's very isolating, but obviously uh, one group of people that it doesn't isolate you from is your, is your family. Would it be fair to say that actually it might improve your sort of familial relationships? Um, what, what have you found uh, during lockdown, Shappy? Well, I live on my own with my two children who are aged 7 and 12, and I've never been so thankful to be single in my life. I don't think there's a single one of my exes that I could have imagined being in this situation with. And that's all taught me quite a lot about 
myself and being single is actually a really, really powerful and comfortable place for me to be in. And also a, a, a point to make is that I love the company of my children and craved for the sort of life where we're rolling around together all day. My children were not meant to be with me alone for all of that time. They are in a nest full of loads and loads of other peoples, my family, my friends, my neighbors, all play such a part in supporting us and being with us as a family. And everyone was joking about, oh, lockdown with kids, oh, aren't kids annoying? I, I, I kind of want to applaud my kids for putting up with me because they've had to see a side of me that was not really present to them before. They've had to see me with massive anxiety, um, not having my mum to come around and look after them while I go and deal with the thoughts in my head. So I was like, whoa, wait a minute, I can't get to meetings. These two young human beings are the only people that are around me. I had to be so honest with them. I had to tell them things that I probably wouldn't have told them. I had to tell them that sometimes I have stuff going on in my head where I had to take myself off. And if I'm on the phone to someone, it's not because I'm idly chit-chatting because I don't want to hang out with them. It's because if I don't do that, then I feel really sad inside. And so they've had to be privy to conversations that I possibly wouldn't have had with them until they were much older. And it's been, you know, it's been fine. I feel very grateful, but uh, it did put me in a mindset of thinking what must this lockdown be like for people that don't have the communication tools and the confidence in asking for help that I have gained. Are we uh, better off when we're interacting with different groups of people in different contexts rather than being in this one small kind of perpetual bubble? I think so. What you're referring to is what we call fission-fusion sociality. Humans, bonobos, chimpanzees, and also other animals have a kind of social life where it's not just you always with your small pack and dyingly and it never changes, but rather you have a community. Say, for example, think of your 150, 200 people that you would invite to your wedding, to a party, but you're never hanging out with these people all at the same time, obviously, right? You don't live with them. Mm. Rather, you have split interactions. So you live with, like, Shapi, two or three. Then you leave in the morning, and then you encounter another group of people, say your colleagues in this kind of work, and then you have lunch with other people. In the evening, you might see friends in the weekend, extended family. When you look at hunter-gatherers and other humans, that property of fissioning and fusioning, Shabby already said it, she felt that her children are somehow not meant to be with their mom all the time. So by imposing lockdown, you know, they are pre-adolescents. So she somehow understands that the natural thing to do would be for these guys to have peers and to be playing with their peers mm. and to be exploring with their peers and then come home and then maybe also see their grandparents. You see, so that kind of fluid, complex property of human sociality, I think, is how we tend to work. But I also think that there's a health aspect to it. 
you know, there is a type of lockdown when you're isolated, which has all the obvious problems that we've been talking about of just isolation, lack of connectivity. But then there's another type of lockdown when you're stuck with a, num with a certain number of people that you're not isolated, but sometimes you wish you would, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's highly stressful too. I learned a very basic thing about conflict prevention and conflict resolution in bonobos. You will all know, of course, these apes are known by being highly sexual. They are, they, they call, they make love, not war. And that is true. But I first observed bonobos in captivity in a zoo. And then I went to the wild. And when I went to the wild, I was like, well, they're not having that much sex. What's going on? And I realized it was a really <laughs> counterintuitive answer. They were not having that much conflict. And mm. they were not having that much conflict because they were not stuck together in a captive situation. In the zoo, bonobos, like humans now, are stuck in an enclosure. Bonobos, like humans, have fission-fusion sociality. So when they had a fight or a conflict, many times you know, we want to solve it through talking because we think a language obviously is so important. But many times animals just diffuse conflict by not being there, by increasing physical separation. Yeah, it's and like you, you have an argument in, in, in the morning and then, you, yeah. and then you go out and then you see each other later and it's all fine again. Exactly. And I think fusion-fusion, being able to do fusion-fusion allows for that kind of conflict resolution, if you see what I mean, that just the simple and ancient act of not being there for a while. Daniel, is there a danger that if we're all working from home that we just get stuck, you know, looking at our screens, stuck with our technology, and we lose these vital kind of social elements, this, this, these fission fusion relationships? I think the answer is yes. And unfortunately, the engineering part of me, my engineering brain is asking myself, how do we engineer a structure that allows fission fusion to emerge? Uh, but you can also run the risk of building in processes and structures that, that will lead to detrimental things. Mm. So um, as people now are going to be working more and more from home, companies are going to start to get access to more data. They're going to get access to not just your emails and your all, all of your kind of um, uh, communication information, but they're going to get access to more data. And they're going to start to use this data now to profile people's not just skills, but their relationships between others, whether their relationships are professional or personal, whether you can identify secret lovers in the data, all of this kind of stuff. And organizations are going to use this insight to try to um, manipulate um, what they want to try to achieve. Now, I use manipulate in, in, in not a negative way, but, but organizations have a goal, which is typically to achieve some sort of profit or, or whatever. And having access to this data, this visibility, means that you can now start to steer people towards that goal. And I guess the concern that I have is if we don't build in fission fusion and some of these other psychological theories, we might be, end up causing more harm than, than what we're actually trying to, um, to solve for. And so if you've got any ideas with your, with your engineering head on? Uh, well, my, my principles are, are quite quite clear, which is I, I want to ensure that you give people freedom, as much freedom as possible, because I think that uh, then they have the ability to, to, to choose how they want to, um, to operate. And uh, I also want to give people equality. During lockdown, all of my work just vanished. There was, there was, there was no filming, I'm a, I'm a TV presenter, it all just went. And I, what I realized is how 
significant a part of my life work is uh, and it made me think a bit about a, f a future where worklessness might be much more commonplace where we just have uh, we'd probably have to have some kind of universal basic income to take care of the cost of living for people who weren't in in work but let's say that I, I am in that position where do I or anyone then get a sense of purpose from if I'm not working like I, I definitely get a sense of purpose from from working um, and I wondered if you had any if any of you actually had any thoughts on that if you take away work from people I will have to say that with comedians in the past throughout recession we've been okay because it hasn't affected our industry and it started to really make me think not for the first time but I never thought that it would be seriously challenged like who on earth am I without live comedy, without my job, without that? And then that's when I just had this desperate desire to be in a room with other comedians. During lockdown, I've been fantasising about this room full of comedians and we're all dancing to Come On Eileen. <laughs> I don't know why specifically that. but It I, sounds like an absolute nightmare, you know, by the way, Sheppy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think it probably would be for most people. But I needed to connect with other, other comedians and I found myself having uh, conversations with comics that I'm not even necessarily good friends with, but we just needed to be with the people in, 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 the, in the same boat. And then I thought, how unhealthy is that? Is it unhealthy mm. that if I don't, if I'm not a stand-up comic, I'm invisible? Um, and how much I've hidden behind my job and how shy I am without stand-up comedy. It's a hell of a thing to, to realise about yourself. So, so yeah. Isabel, what, what do you think about a, a sense of purpose without work? Bonobos don't work. Uh, so, so how can we kind of, um, you know, draw on, the, on their lives to, to make sure that we still feel a clear sense of identity and purpose? Humans, like... Other social animals, we have interdependent systems, which means that your success is tied to somebody else's success and so on. We need to feel that we have a role. Currently, work is tied to role. So I matter because I do X, and of course, because it brings an income. But if you're asking the question of you know, if we were to disentangle the future of work from the future of income, I would say that meaning comes from community and creativity, which basically these are two ways that people have roles in their communities, whether it's from helping, from doing things with others, and also from creating. I'm assuming, Daniel, that given you're, you're an AI guy, that you must have given this some thought, because there's certainly a strong possibility that AI will push us in the direction of large cohorts of people not being in work. There's a concept called the economic singularity, which is the point in time where AIs are freeing up jobs, but people can't retrain fast enough to get new jobs. And we think that that might happen in the next 10, 15 years, and, and we will see lots of technological unemployment. The concern is, is that we might not be socially set up um, or economically set up to deal with that. So I've been giving this a, a, lot, a lot of thought and actually my, my company's purpose used to be um, to uh, create a world where everybody is free to work on what they love. 
and uh, and so this this term work has been something that I've been thinking about a lot and, and I've realized we've changed our purpose now to, to create a world where everybody's free to live beyond themselves it's not about work it's about two things people develop themselves, you go home and you learn to play the guitar or you contribute to open source stuff. That's work, you're putting in energy, but you're doing something that is developing yourself. But also people do things for other people. We contribute, we teach, we inspire, we educate. And again, I think there's an innate drive for us to make the world better for this current generation and the generation um, after us. So I think that the human nature um, is about putting in energy to develop oneself and to try and create the world better, to, to make the world better. The question for me is how do we create a planet? How do we create a social, economic, political system that gives everybody the opportunity to do that? And, and I think that unfortunately we have a dystopian future that we could go down over the next 10, 20, 30 years, but we also have an opportunity to use technology and all of these stuff that we know about human psychology to create a more utopian future. Do we think that working from home will enable um, a more kind of opaque and uh, anonymous society because we're able to hide behind uh, avatars? And is that necessarily a bad thing or might it actually promote more equality um, because some of those biases that we have are, are, are removed? There's a, a part of the book by um Plato in Republic where a shepherd um, called Gyges finds a ring and he puts on the ring and he goes invisible and with that power of anonymity he, he does bad things he, he kills the, the king and seduces the queen and takes control of the kingdom and I think that we see this yeah he, he becomes yeah. the king doesn't he it's, yeah, uh, it's an absolute right. result for him yeah uh, that's right but I think that the point is is that when you have uh, the power of anonymity pe people tend to default to doing bad things. And we see that on online forums where they can hide behind these fake avatars. What's interesting is in, in the future, there's, there's gonna be a tension between using AI to understand people and who they are and their behaviors and all that kind of stuff. And apparently with something like 200 likes on Facebook, you can know somebody better than they know their partner. So, so there's, there's enough digital footprint that you're laying to be able to really understand everything about you. I might even be able to understand or predict what passwords you're going to be using for your accounts and all this kind of stuff. But what's also interesting is we can also use these technologies to obfuscate the truth. And we can create digital representations of whoever that, that, that we don't even know what, what is true anymore. And there's an interesting point in, in time over the next five, ten years where we, we will not know what is true whether you're in the media or a reporter, because there's no way of validating it. And that's a very interesting point in time where you do not know what, what, is, what is true. So even real stuff, but the, just the presence of deep fakes means that then you can't trust anything. Indeed, indeed. And uh, it's going to be a very interesting time. I, I, I heard a story recently of somebody that trained a, a, a model uh, on the, the voice of a CEO. They, they took the, all of these snippets of a CEO's voice and they had this, this AI call up the accountant and say, I need you to make a transfer uh, urgently because this is important. And the accountant thought they were talking to the CEO and, and really they were talking to an AI. That's actually terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> I don't like that very much. Another thing I, that I'm interested by in terms of the behaviours that we that we keep post lockdown or, or as we're moving slowly out of lockdown is is social distancing. Will we consciously or subconsciously continue to, to socially distance or is being tactile with one another so important that we'll go back to hugging and handshakes and, uh, and all of this stuff? What do you think, Isabel? We could evolve new ways of greeting so that 
for example, they're already present in the East. So, you know, like bowing. But the hug in particular, the hug is very important. We want to be tactile. We need to be tactile. Uh, and you see that currently uh, people are developing all sorts of coping mechanisms to adapt to the lack of touch. Uh, we are we're so visual that we are very aware of what happens. You know, everybody has thought, what if I were to become blind? But we, we haven't really thought very much, what if I were to lose my sense of touch? I think one of the things that we have thought a little bit now is what does the world feel without a sense of touch? I do not think it's a coincidence that people are doing things like puzzles and cooking and planting and, you know, adopting more dogs and mm. caressing their pets more. These are all ways that we are engaging our sense of touch. Even drawing instead of sometimes typing. Your, your skin, think of your skin as a huge sensory equipment. It's, your skin is part of your cognition. There are experiments that show that we are incredibly good at knowing the intentions of somebody at just whether this touch is anger or this is saying something. So a world without touch is a world that I think we do not want and also that we would find very difficult. With all of these hobbies um, that we've, we've, uh, we've taken up or, or done much more of um, and, and clearly enjoyed, um, How's that going to be affected as we return to normality? Has this revealed that actually we should be doing more of that stuff anyway? Or is it all just going to fall by the wayside again, Daniel? What do you reckon? Again, every time I, I, I'm listening to this stuff, I'm figuring out how do you create um, environments that, that foster this. When, when I think about building companies, um, there's a very good book that I've just read recently called Scale, and, and the hypothesis is that companies ultimately die. But communities don't. Communities seem to thrive and, and grow for the most part. And so when I'm asking myself about how do you create organizations that, that are going to thrive, it's ultimately how do you take the principles of a community and build them into a, a company structure. So I'm asking myself now, how can you build play and tactile activities within within your, your daily life? And, uh, and I don't know the answer to it, but I feel like we definitely need to take some of these ideas and, uh, and, and bring them into organizations. Look at festivals and traditional community celebrations. Human communities are built by ritual. These are ancient engines, they are technologies, they are social glue. So food sharing, drinks, laughter, dancing, music making, the evening, you know, conversations around the fire, just even a beat that synchronizes people. Uh, just add one more thing tying to your previous question about the anonymous society. We protect our wealth, our capital. Everybody understands that. Right, that if you have financial capital, you protect it, it's your source of energy. A dog will guard their food. But for humans, reputation is also a form of wealth. So when you build digital systems where reputation is visible, starting from the very simple fact that you have a real name, your full name and a photograph, and you're a real person in the world, that's a proxy for saying my reputation is here. It's like, say, it's like playing a game of poker and having your real wallet on the table instead of pretend money. Uh, so when you build digital systems, 
that have reputation visible or behaviour immediately changes. So that's a really interesting point because I guess in your own organisations, reputation is usually linked to your skill level and your hierarchy and, and this kind of stuff. But actually, what we should be building into our structures is, a, is also a, a, an acknowledgement and a celebration of people's reputation of performing ceremonies and enabling rituals and, and all of the social stuff that we need to start to guess bring into organisations. Is that is that fair? Is that right? Yes, very much so. And I would say also that a huge, you know, uh, in terms of building security is to build mechanisms that make visible who you are connected to and how. Because the fear of ostracism, of being left by your tribe, is one of our most profound fears because obviously we do not survive alone. So, as you know, we've all been made aware when we were little and we did something bad when our mom said, Look, so and so told me that you did that. And then and they would go, like, I will go and tell your grandma. And that was profoundly terrifying. Basically, your social circle is the most effective policing unit that you have. So once you make people visible, not only in who they are in terms of work, but which social networks they're connected in. I use the term social networks as in, in, in the wild, you know, real social networks. That is a very effective mechanism, psychological mechanism, for situating yourself in the real world and like the wide sense of reputation. And people so need to guard that with their life. So this raises lots of ethical questions for me because in, in my company, for example, what we can do is we can gather all of this data that people are, are emitting and we can start to look at people's connections and their relationships and I'm pretty sure that I can identify people who are going to leave the company before they know they're going to leave the company. I can identify secret lovers in my company. So the question really I have is who should have access to that information and should I know that you're about to leave the company even if you don't know you're about to leave the company and do I have the right to intervene in that uh, in that action? In some ways could you make that information just available to everyone? You could yeah and uh, one of the hypotheses I have uh, or one of the questions I usually ask my audience is is what would the world look like if all information was open? If everything was open, if I knew your passwords, if I It'd knew... It would be a bad idea. Well, so, so a lot of people respond to, to, to that. And I think I, I probably have the same instinct. But if, for example, I have all of my passwords open for my uh, bank details, then people will say, well, well I'll, I'll take money from your bank. But if I, if I can see who's taking money from my bank, if I, if I know your passwords, then I'll just take the money back and we can play this game all day if you want. And, and I wonder if by having access to more information, people would be more empathic and they would be more um, uh, considerate in, in, in how we behave towards each other. I, I don't know, it's, a, it's an open question. So it might kind of become self-policing in a way, Indeed. so everyone behaves in an appropriate way because they know that everyone can see what they're doing anyway. To a certain extent, but with a very important caveat, depending on group size. It's very crucial because things that work at a small scale don't work at, a, at the scale of human societies that we have now and certainly not at 7.8 billion people. Indeed. That's the, like the human brain 2.0 that we need to develop that and we are really not there at all. Is that number, when you say sort of 150, 200 people, is that related to sort of the maximum group size that humans can maintain in terms of number of relationships? I've definitely read that Dunbar number before. Dunbar. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, Dunbar was Dunbar. my supervisor, yeah. so... Oh, I'm there biased. you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't mean 150 as, like, the magic group. It's really more than... There are nested hierarchies of 
types of interactions. Obviously, mm. you deal with a lot more people than 150. Uh, and people also have variation of the number of people they can deal with. I mean, I imagine Shappi is a genius in terms of remembering, I don't know, 5,000 names, 10,000, I don't know. Have you ever counted how many people's names you know? Do you know, uh, weirdly, I don't know people's names, but I remember every tiny right. detail that they told me in conversation. Let's talk a little bit about the, the behaviours that have developed during lockdown that we'd like to see more of, that we want to see retained as we, as we move out uh, back into normality. Shappy, what do you want to hang on to? Conversations on the phone or on FaceTime with people in my life that I'm not necessarily close friends with, but I really like. Um, that's happened Weirdly, in lockdown, my closest friends were the ones that psychologically I couldn't sit and natter to because it was almost too painful. And also, they already know my stories, but there are people on the peripheries of my life that I connected with and I had FaceTime with, and it was kind of really intimate because we'd never had that sort of relationship before. Um, likewise, I started to... Um, write letters and that I have found really nourishing remembering what it was like in the old days to just drop someone a line you didn't have to be close friends you didn't have to say anything deep and meaningful you drop them a line and uh, yeah just time I've learned that empty my diary and I will find ways to survive and what I let in is a much more uh, a nourishing relationship with everyone around me. Uh, Isabel, uh, what behaviours would you want to keep in a kind of future uh, utopia? In the larger sense, the humbleness that has come with seeing how the virus has hit not just our health, uh, but also the hidden connections between things. So we know the work by Harari, you know, it's about humans being gods. And I think the notion... From, uh, from sapiens. Yes, and, yeah. and the notion of us being gods was suddenly at least questioned. Perhaps not gods, but demigods. Uh, because we were very quickly brought to our knees by a strand of RNA. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, when you put it like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go, hmm. <laughs> I mean, at the other hand, I think it's beautiful because during full lockdown, we are exploring digital technologies and futuristic technologies and exploration of planets. And that puts us in, in an entirely new category in terms of forms of life on Earth. But on the other hand, we're still animals. We're still part of nature. I would like in, in a utopian future for us to be able to remember that that ritual is important, that play is important, that feeling the light, the sunlight on your skin outside when you're moving, it's, you know, makes you a healthy animal. Uh, my fear is, of course, that uh, we will have such a need to rebuild our economies, that uh, instead of being able to do it wisely and using the anthropos, that we will rush and it'll be like a Black Friday type scenario. <laughs> what you see is that often technologies are already present, you know, greener technologies are present. Uh, say, take, take what we've do, been doing with Zoom. 
all these technologies were already here for a long time ago. Why weren't we using them better, more cleverly, in a more flexible way? Why didn't I buy shares in Zoom in early March? <laughs> because nobody, <laughs> nobody is a clairvoyant, uh, and we don't no, have know. much. You know, uh, we can't look into the future that much. So Daniel is. Daniel away. knows when people are going to leave his company. <laughs> yes, actually, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. That's the closest we've got to a soothsayer <laughs> is Daniel. The AI people. Data. The AI people. <laughs> they know stuff. things. <laughs> <laughs> Painting you as a sort of sinister overlord here. I hope you don't mind that, Daniel. It's not the first time, it's fine. <laughs> Daniel, uh, our sinister overlord, um, what do you want to see in, uh, in, our, um, in a kind of utopian uh, future? What kind of behaviours? Over the past few years, I've been travelling a lot. I think like many of you, you go and do talks and travel the world. And actually, I've always been very guilty. I felt very guilty about my, the impact that has on the environment. And, and I hope that we... We do, we do less of that, and I'm looking forward to doing less of that. But I think, cru uh, crucially, uh, being at home has meant that I've wanted to make the environment as nice as possible. So I think more and more people have nested and, uh, mm. and focused more on their environment, which I've, I've, like, I've, I've seen. But the thing that I will really take away from this is that I've been a lot more careful about what I consume. Um, and, and also mm. what I contribute to. We have an opportunity to reset the expectations about, about what is important in terms of our consumption. Uh, I think that's probably a good point to uh, wrap things up. Thank you so much, uh, Isabel, Shappy and Daniel. Lots of mull over. Uh, I think I'm already starting some sort of uh, internal um, audit or internal scrutiny, thinking about my own behaviours and what I want to keep and what I want to tweak. And clearly, you know, the, the thing is we are all... Uh, in this together, living through this utterly sort of unique and at times certainly scary phenomenon. Uh, but of course, we'll all respond to it, I think, in, uh, and, and, and feel it and experience it in, in quite different ways. And given that, uh, it'd be great to hear from you at home what ideas you've had about resetting and, and shaping a better future, both for, for yourselves and your family and, and for the wider uh, community. You know, do you feel like you have more agency over your personal well-being now? Do you think that now that a lot of us can potentially work from home, we might be able to create a more equal workforce? Are you going to be able to maintain those social connections that you've been missing? Please, basically, pipe up, get in touch, uh, comment on our, on our socials and subscribe to our channels for more episodes of Project Reset.